Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. In this episode, we discuss what the role is of fully vertically integrated products in the regenerative transition of a farmer. Products that really go from soil to plate and discover the story of the only micro soy sauce brewery in Europe. Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food. This is a special dedicated series on transition finance. Why are we recording this series? Many farmers are ready to speed up their regenerative transition. They've looked for learning, done the courses, read the key books, hosted the gurus on their farms, explored farm-sized regenerative designs, and most importantly, started their pilots and feedback loops. This is where transition finance is key. A local bank loan often isn't feasible because of the short duration, lack of flexibility, and the farmer's lack of collateral. Furthermore, there's a limit of how much equity a farmer is able or willing to give away. That is why my co-host, aspiring to be regenerative farmer, Benedict Bösel, and I are embarking on a journey to find out what are the key principles of transition finance for regenerative farmers. We are interviewing leading practitioners in the regenerative agriculture and food finance space. They share their insights how they would finance the speed up of the regenerative transition on Benedict's 1,000 hectares, which is almost 2,500 acres, farm in Germany close to Berlin. This is an open process. We are sharing our lessons through the podcast episodes as we go along. We don't have the answers yet, just a lot of questions. So please share with us any examples of transition finance you've seen, other inspiration, people to interview, etc. Get in touch via the contact page on the website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. That is investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. Tomasu soy sauce is the only microbrewed soy sauce in Europe and finds its origin in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And I'm pretty sure they're the only farm-to-bottle and farm-to-plate soy sauce maker in the world with a regenerative farmer as part of the company. Welcome, Bert. Hey, cool. Thanks for having us. Of course, of course. And a personal question, because you don't have a background as a farmer, if I remember correctly. How did you end up talking about soy and soil so much and what brings you to the world of agriculture? Well, I'm still kind of surprised that I'm talking about soil. If you would have asked me this question five years ago, I would I would never have known that I was about to talk about soil, to be honest. So it has been quite a five-year journey that is now resulting in this podcast. <laughs> and can you share a bit about your background as you don't come from, I think, the food space and the agriculture space? Well, my personal background finds its origin in more marketing and commercial-related roles. But to be honest, this whole soy sauce story started with my brother-in-law, which I know already for 15 or 16 years or so, who has a long history as a, with his family as a baker. So when he visited my home, I think it was six, seven years ago, and asked me what I thought about the idea of brewing our own soy sauce, I thought he was lunatic, to be honest. But that same evening, I started Googling and I was like, why is nobody doing this? It is like the number one most used sauce in the world, obviously for Asian reasons, but it's not like what you have with uh, vinegar or uh, balsamico or with olive oil that you have meters and meters wide in stores. And with soy sauce, there are just one, two, 
options you can have whilst the flavor it brings to your dish is insane. And so looking into it, it was like, why is nobody doing this? So from that moment on, that first evening, we were like, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do this properly. And then we need to be very careful with what we have in our hands, still very doubtful, very insecure whether this was even a good idea. But we simply started and that's where the journey started. So, okay, how do you make it? And luckily we got some help from America. Yeah, because with the power of the internet, obviously you found some examples of actually people that have done it at a non-industrial scale. Yeah, that's quite a cool story because as said, my brother-in-law was two months before, I think uh, he visited me and sat down at my kitchen table. He was looking at Discovery Channel and was watching a documentary called Bizarre Foods, where a um, blonde hair, blue-eyed guy from Louisville, Kentucky was brewing his own soy sauce. And it is a bizarre food, uh, having that context. And at that moment, watching the documentary, he literally booked a flight ticket. And within two days, he was visiting his brewery. And he knocked on the door without an invitation. And luckily, the guy opened the door and he said the famous words, well, where are you from? Do we have an appointment? No, no, no. But I saw you on television. And what you are doing, I want to do in the Netherlands. And he was like, okay. Welcome in Kentucky. And that's basically the start of it all. And he came back, was infused with the whole soy sauce virus and infused me and infused uh, his right hand in his bakery. And suddenly we were with the three of us willing to start the soy sauce journey, basically. But very soon we already discovered that, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do this properly. And we got really inspired by wineries where soil is an actual part of the whole product philosophy. And not that it was on purpose that we were already looking into soil or whatever. It was more driven from a, a need for autonomy. We want to do everything ourselves because from the start we had the idea this might be something special. So we need to be very careful with what we have and let's find a farmer. And that was quite a journey, to be honest, and quite a quest to find the one that was suiting our vision and matched our values. I think that's something, first of all, I got goosebumps when you told that story, because it resonates with so much experience that I have had and that I am always kind of having for some reason. And I think the basis and the key, and that's, I think, for all of us in any situation, it's this believing and understanding and just doing it, mm -hmm. just starting. That's everything. Everything is starting and doing it. Because once you do that, once you start the journey, so to say, and it is reflects beautifully with the story how your brother-in-law went to the US and then obviously this guy opens the door and everything falls into place as if there is some sort of laid out plan that was always lying there and you guys basically just go with it and then it's a journey and that's what it's all about right and this is what brings the passion in it this brings the motivation the vision the idea the the energy that you can basically get out of it and I think this is really key for all of those transition processes and those you know, who are wanting to try new ways and go different directions because life has a funny way of then actually bringing things to you and opening doors and establishing connections with people or with situations that you wouldn't have thought before. So I think it's a, just a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. The thing is, all credit should go to him, but it turned out to become a red thread in our whole company, basically. So We don't have all the answers, to be honest, but we do have all the questions. And in order to get those answers, you simply need to do stuff. And it's about trial and error. We did a lot of stupid things along the way. 
lost a lot of money, lost a lot of time, but we had fun doing it and we got out better than we started. So that became some sort of a life motto or however you want to call it for our company, for our small group of people, basically. And we left the story at you, you pretty quickly found out that you wanted to keep everything in your own hands, basically be completely vertically integrated. That means you needed a farmer that farmed soy. Was that difficult, easy? Well, because I'm pretty sure there are some interesting stories also on that side on how you found a regenerative farmer at the end, because you mentioned you weren't too focused on soil, you were focused on quality. How did that happen to find your key ingredients for the sauce? It had to do a lot with luck, I think, in a sense. But for us, it all started with that search for autonomy. We wanted to do everything ourselves, so we needed a farmer. But actually, that was the basis for starting the search for a farmer. But it actually, in the end, turned out to be one of our most crucial decisions that we've made. Because for us, it's all about some sort of a relentless search for flavor, if you call it like that. And we never expected the farmer to play such a crucial role in that process. And because if you see what happens now, and that is like, let's say, five years later, we see that chefs who are visiting our brewery, we can now also bring them to the farm. And it sounds also obvious, but apparently it's not. It's not obvious. It's also not obvious that there's a soy sauce brewery in Rotterdam, apparently. But from that brewery to the farm is like a 10-minute drive. And it's so honest in a sense that you can be very vulnerable because at least we're trying, we know what we're doing. And the fact that you have a farm, have your own brewery, have everything under control, it allows you to be vulnerable. And as I said, we don't have all the answers, but we certainly do have all the questions. And what we did create is a, the luxury position that we can look for the answers in our own supply chain. And that turned out to be a, one of our most crucial decisions that we've made. But the search for a farmer was rather difficult and even frustrating at times. Obviously, I'm going to ask, why is that? Can you elaborate a bit? Yeah, the frustration was that the question we had where we started to look for farmers, our main question was, can you grow for quality instead of quantity? And although that seems like a very positive question to a farmer, it didn't resonate. It was like, yeah, they're so programmed in a sense to focus on quantity that the whole quality aspect was not even part of the conversation. So we got kind of frustrated about it because, yeah, hey, we're offering you something. It's, uh, let's set a, a fixed fee for your hectare as long as you promise us that you do the best you can instead of grow the most you can. And after hearing no several times, we were like, are we stupid? What is going on here? And I remember a moment, it was again, my brother-in-law, Thomas is his name. He was visiting some sort of a conference, small conference with a miller in the south of the Netherlands. And he got tapped on the back and, hey, maybe, maybe it's better if you stop this conversation. Because he, again, it was kind of ending up being a frustrating conversation. And he was like, you should call this guy. He talks as strange as you do. And that was Jeroen, our farmer, who is now on board in our uh, company. And basically, he got his phone number, called him, and um, we visited his farm. And I think within 30 to 45 minutes, this was a done deal in a sense that, okay, we're going to do this together. And that's how it started uh, with the farm. And obviously, that had also a lot of hiccups in the beginning because he was talking always big quantities and we were about small tests. But over the years, we found each other better. <laughs> and did Jeroen, the farmer, already grow soy? It's a very practical question, but I was just wondering 
because it's not so known, I think, in at least south of Rotterdam as a soy growing area. No, I think it wasn't part of his rotation yet, but he was looking into it and he was uh, growing beans already, kidney beans, brown beans, whatsoever. And for us, it was uh, together with Jeroen, that's also why it was very helpful to have a farmer on board. It was like, okay, we have this type of soil because we are located south of Rotterdam. What is the best soybean for this type of soil in this type of climate and for this type of product? And obviously, we didn't have the answer. So we went to the University of Wageningen and we found out that there are over 5,000 species of soybeans. And together with the professor and the university, we made a pre-selection. We narrowed it down to, let's say, 24 species. Did some small test fields in, I think it was somewhere in the middle of the Netherlands. And we selected four based upon nutritional value, based upon looks, to be honest. Some plants simply look better. We actually had a conversation about our ingredients instead of buying it on the market and the fact that we had those conversations is already has so much value for our product in understanding what we are doing and what we were about to do and also having a farmer on board being part of that process asking different questions that really helped us and i think it's now slightly more common to grow soybeans in the netherlands as a a rotational crop but for us it's our main ingredient so that has a lot of benefits also for the farm Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com course or in the show notes description below. I was just wondering basically how do these varieties that you do choose which are quality-wise good from nutritional value, which have a nice taste, how do they compare on average to the average soybean that is regularly being used from, from, of people that are actually looking for yield? Like the difference between the two, do you know what I mean? I think the biggest difference, to be honest, eventually comes to the quality of the soil. So the selection of the variety of the soybeans, I'm not so aware of what the differences are, to be honest. But what we see, and that's also data we are getting over the years, so we are getting a better insight in what the nutritional value of our own soybeans are. We only have now four harvests, so it's not that much of data to say something. But for us, what we see is that we see a clear relationship between the quality of the soil and the nutritional value in the, in the soybean. And for us, there's a saying we tend to use a lot, is that nutritional value is no matter how you look at it, connected to taste and in a positive way. So the higher the nutritional value, we genuinely believe that it has a positive impact on taste. So the way we look at it, it's our own soil, it's our own variety, and we try to treat our soil the best we can every year in order to ramp up the nutritional value of the soybeans. So I don't have a lot of insight in comparison to other soy farmers or other varieties, to be honest. This is hugely interesting. Obviously, we know, I guess we all know Zach Bush and his work in, in the US and yeah. sort of bringing that, I think, that impact and that narrative of soil quality, nutritional value, taste towards the consumer. I think that's a great way of actually starting a conversation on that front. Absolutely. And Dan Barber, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
But just one thing going back, because I mean, a farmer will always ask for the financials, right? So on an acre or whatever, like, is there a margin increase that you're offering Jerome for his work and also his caretaking, his caretaking maybe for the soil that actually reflects basically in the margin that you offer him? Or is it not really about that? Is it, is it also other factors? Well, we have a couple of things that we strive for. I'm not saying that we are already successful with all of them, but what we're striving for is that we are paying for quality and not quantity asset. So meaning that he doesn't need to focus on yield, on quantity-wise, he needs to focus on quality. And that could result into a situation where we give him a guaranteed fee per hectare. And that, uh, that fee, he's part of the conversation, which for him is already, he's part of the company that is buying his soybeans. So there's an equal conversation. He's sitting at both tables. <laughs> so that already gives him the flexibility to see, okay, for this year with this level of quality in the context that we are with both companies, this is a proper price to pay. And thus far, we didn't face any situations as we didn't manage to figure it out with the four of us. And so the main focus is to manage the risk and to spread the risk in the whole vertical chain. And comparing it to the more conventional way of doing business for a farmer is that all the risk is at his end. And spreading that risk already gives a lot of comfort on his side in a sense that that will allow him to not to compromise on flower edges, not to compromise on cover crops, et cetera, et cetera, because usually that tends to become a financial decision. And that's what we want to get out of the process. We don't want to make decisions based on financial components because, yeah, that would mean that we are losing sight of the quality of our product. And With the margins we have on soy sauce, there's some room to pay more than what he would get on the regular market. What would that mean for you, Benedict? A guaranteed payment per hectare, not per yield. Just dreaming about it, thinking about it, would that be fundamental in shifting possibilities? Would that be a small change? Taking risk of my shoulders would, would be an amazing step, obviously, right? Because the thing is, Volker Engelsmann always says, how can I think green if my figures are red, right? And I think that sentence is, has, that has just stuck with me because I can feel that from my heart, you know. Most of the decisions today are only financial because we are all kind of, an, and I'm stuck in my system with the way we, we do it on the farm. I cannot change too many of the large variables, although, or even if I wanted to, because there's just too much risk. Like you have to earn a certain cash flow in order to be able to pay the cost that you have. And if you can't pay them, you can't start doing things that you might want to do, but come at a certain cost. So being able to take decisions that are not solely based on the financial side would basically give you the freedom to operate in a way that has a, maybe a strong focus on ecological side effects, has a stronger focus on, you know, actually going ways that you know that will pay off in the future. But those first couple of years, I guess, the transition years would then be eased through, I guess. So um, having a certain fixed income per hectare on a certain area of the farm, that obviously helps you a lot because you can work with it, you can plan with it, and it's there for, for you to basically use in order to uh, steer the company in a direction where you want it to be. So I think that's a great way of doing it. And especially that combination with having a company that is actually using that product also, like Jerome is in both involved and that way of discussing together the price, the quantities, the way, the strategy. I think that is a model that has, uh, is an, an incredible model, to be honest with you. I think we should understand agriculture much more in that regard. You know, that 
it's not only the production of resources or food and feed. It's so much more. You can do so much more. And why shouldn't you, you know? To follow up on that, I think it's also not that uh, at the muscle we are, uh, let's say, activists who simply think farmers should get paid more. It actually brings us a lot of added value. So ever since we've started, we never spent one euro on marketing, but we drove to the farm, I think, 100, maybe 200, 300 times. And the value of having conversations in between your own soybeans if you need, wanted to express that in marketing value, that is insane. So it's not that we are supporting farmers or whatsoever. No, it's actually adding value to our business. So by having the opportunity to bring people to the field, explaining our philosophy on soil, on how we treat our crops, um, all these things, it's, it's not charity at all. It's for us a crucial, maybe even a decisive decision that we made for how we are perceived as a brand and as a product. And how is it, you, you mentioned four harvests, mm. like this work and the work you've been doing with the farm, obviously inside the company and the farmer relationship, has that changed the quality, like the measurements you've been doing, you mentioned it before, has it changed the soy over the last four years? Like, have you seen an increase <laughs> or an improvement? Flavor, obviously, is something you're constantly seeking for. What has been the differences over the last four years as the farmer has been focusing more and more and more on soil? To be honest, we do single cask. So we brew our soy sauce on uh, 30 to 40 year old whiskey barrels we source from Scotland. So every barrel in itself already has a unique flavor. It requires a pretty professional taste buds to notice the difference, to be honest, but there is a difference in it. For us, it's hard to say. It depends a lot on the weather. It depends on the barrel it's in. It depends on the parcels that we've used. It depends on the time of the year that we start the process of brewing. All these elements come into play. So it's I find it hard to say, well, that harvest was better than that harvest. With wine, for instance, it's, I think, better to compare because, yeah, it's all grapes. There's a wine of that year. There's a wine of that We have a lot of other... It's a perennial crop. It stays in the same place. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that's the most important part. But for us, it's... There are so many variables that have influence on the flavor that for me, it's hard to, to see a difference. So the way we use our different harvests is that we look at the nutritional value. We look at how it responds in the initial week of creating koji. That's the first step of making soy sauce. And when it turns into moromi, when it goes into the barrel, then we see what happens. But we don't have all knowledge yet. So what we created is a situation that we hope that within 10, 15, maybe even 20 years from now, I can give you an answer to the question you just asked, but now I don't. Let's say also the wine industry had a, had a few years to figure <laughs> out a lot of these things. Yeah. The cool thing also is, it's not that we have a whole list of contacts that we can call and say, how do you do this? Because we got in contact with uh, Japanese soy brewers and obviously the, the American soy brewer, and it's not that they are approaching it like this. And they are now also raising questions within their uh, supply chain. But for us, it's... There are not a lot of peers to discuss this. Meaning that you're the only one. I mean, I suggested that in my intro, but it was mostly me suggesting it. Mm -hmm. You're probably the only or one of the very few soy brewers that have access to their own soy and actually are in full control over the full value chain, basically, or full value web of their product. Yeah, I know that the guy who welcomed us uh, six years ago, met Jamie from uh, Bourbon Barrel Foods in, um, in Louisville, Kentucky, is also having very close relationship with his suppliers. So I know he's doing it as well. 
But to be honest, from the people we spoke to in Japan, it was, we never met any soy brewers from Korea or whatsoever, but yeah, they were very surprised hearing our story. That's insane, if you ask me, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of course. And what would be some tips or how would you approach this with the knowledge you have? Obviously you say we have more questions than answers. That's more or less the motto of this podcast as well. But what would be some questions you would ask any farmer in that is, I mean, like we usually say at the intro, it's farmers that are too big for the farmer's market and are probably still part of, in a large part of the commodity markets that are wanting to shift some pieces of the farm, some experiments, some early trials to see and to taste what could happen with different margins, guaranteed prices, quality over quantity, et cetera. What would be your first step as, uh, in this case, soy sauce maker? Well, for me, is what we are very happy with now, looking back, is that we are a company or a group of four people. And we have a farmer, we have a former baker who now turned into a soy brewer, let's say, and we have me responsible for, let's say, visualizing the product, uh, sharing the story, the marketing, more commercial part. And then you have my brother-in-law who is bothering everybody with his opinion, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a, he's a junior farmer, junior brewer, and junior marketeer, basically, <laughs> or senior, whatever you want to call it. No, but the thing is that we are not competitors. So I trust the farmer in his profession. I trust the brewer in his profession. They trust me in my profession. And the cool thing about it is that I'm not insulted by odd or even stupid questions or critical questions at all. And everybody looks at it from their angle. And that creates a certain synergy between the, each part of the chain that allows us to be very good in what we do as individuals. And some of it is something that yeah really works. So uh, we, we also don't have daily contact with each other. Everybody's doing his own thing. And on a weekly basis, there's a, a quick catch up, basically. And we're going full steam ahead. And if you want to do this, you need to have all disciplines in place because if you need to do this all by yourself, it's going to be a nightmare, to be honest. And so that's one thing. And the second thing is simply try a lot, do a lot and see where you end up. And because the biggest asset we have is our knowledge and the knowledge about our product. So by raising a lot of questions and trying and testing and doing stupid stuff, we are now, I just got a text uh, from Jeroen that he's testing rice and we don't know where we're going to use it for but it turns out to be a good crop in the rotation for whatever kind of other crop. And okay, we're trying and maybe it raises a lot of more questions, but it will certainly also give a lot of answers. And it's, that's also the joy of it that we keep on experimenting. And to be able to do so, you need to have that first group of people with different backgrounds. I was just wanting to find those four people This is basically what makes the sauce. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an incredible journey to find the right people to do this with. In my experience, it takes quite a long time to get to know people on a level that you do know if they are the right people. Mm -hmm. So maybe you were lucky or maybe it was an interesting coincidence. But I'd be interested to hear maybe some of your personal story as well, that if this is so to say one of many and this one worked or if you you know have you have you got an opinion on that because for me as a farmer and i mean this is a model that we do we lease land to a couple that is doing a market garden we work with different corporates here on the on the estate we have always between five and ten interns we have people around all the time and i'm very well i try to be 
obviously including, but I mean, I, I do look at the people or I try to look at the people very carefully because if you have so many people and especially if they're young and, you know, there's many things happening, then it's important to find the right people. And so I think that's, that's such a crucial point. So if you have some more to share how you actually found them and how, which experience maybe you made as well, maybe there's even a, a line of communication between the four of you. Uh, I think that would, that would be really interesting to know as well. Well, also, there was a lot of luck in play that we knew some people already. But looking back at it, I think it was, for all of us, it feels very logical that we are now where we are. But it was never planned. But we have two sides of the story. One was the lucky part where I turned out to be a brother-in-law who was making his profession in more marketing, commercial-related area. So that was something my brother-in-law didn't have. So that was a good mix. That was just luck. He had a baker who turned out to be very creative and willing to dive deep into the world of soy sauce. So that was the lucky part. The other one, uh, part was, yeah, the, the story I just told about finding a farmer. That was mm -hmm. perseverance. It was really uh, struggling to find. And all the conversations we had were about values, not so much about skill set or not so much about money or, or nothing at all. It was How do you look at the world? Okay, we're on the same page. And that immediately led to a connection that, okay, if we are agreeing on this dot on the horizon, then we can start and then we'll see where it ends. And so there's no blueprint or whatsoever. But if you want to have some sort of a control, I think for this type of process, it's just meeting a lot of people, making sure that you're always open and vulnerable and asking the right questions, to be honest. But yeah. There's no blueprint, to be honest. No, unfortunately, whenever we speak about land use, there's never any blueprints around, right? <laughs> so it would make life so much easier, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I think the value part is very interesting and not necessarily on the skill part, but because a lot of that you can, you can learn. I had a discussion yesterday of somebody was hiring someone or is hiring someone. Maybe they already did as we're recording this. And we tried to focus as much as possible on, okay, are the values and are the the main value was connecting with other people of different types, so large corporates, farmers, etc., And everything else, and maybe he or she didn't know too much about Regenec yet, but that you can learn if you're interested enough and you are able to connect with people from different backgrounds, then you can also learn about Regenec. And that's not the most impossible thing. If you're going to be the best farmer ever, but that wasn't the role. So I think that value connection is absolutely crucial. Yeah, and for us, it, when we started, we never heard about regenerative agriculture. Never. And now it's part of every conversation I have. And that's five years, right? That's like nothing in a... Yeah, yeah it's, it's five years. And But also in the first conversations we've had with Jeroen, it was about building soils and soil is important, but not even the term regenerative agriculture was there. But the fact that, okay, we're going for quality instead of quantity, that was basically it. And that was the common value that we've shared. And from that point on, it took off. And... Where is Tomasu now? Actually, I'll, I'll link it obviously below for anybody. I think he ship all over Europe. So anybody in Europe, mm -hmm. definitely get some bottles. I yep. tasted it. It's very good. Where is Tomasu now? Five years, four harvests later. I mean, obviously it's a slow process. It takes, I think, two years to brew. And what is the company? We're in a crazy time. We're recording this as everybody is still in lockdown. Can you give us a bit of a lay of the land where, where Tomasu is? To give a little bit of context, I think what is crucial to understand is that it took us four years to come up with a product that was actually able to be sold. So when we started, it took us four years. So a lot of investment was required, especially time, obviously, but also money. And we were 
again, lucky that we had two companies on board that could help us with that transition period. But it also made us fully focused on DIY. Everything we did was a do-it-yourself mentality because, for instance, a soy sauce press, uh, you can't find one on Amazon or it's not there. So we need to build it ourselves and with limited resources. And that is still part of our DNA in the sense that everything we do is about managing costs, keeping them as low as possible because it took us four years to have our first sale. And that uh, first sale, our launch strategy, it's also good to keep in mind that when we started, we thought, let's brew it for a year. So the fermentation process, let's take a year for that. That sounded quite intellectual. So the four seasons, we all have seen some documentaries in which the Japanese would talk about seasons and whatsoever. And so that's how we started. But then after a year, Thomas and Pete were looking into the barrels and there was still so much fermentation going on that we were like, well, why should we stop? We basically said it to ourselves so it could also easily yeah let's stop on when the fermentation stop when nature gives us the signal that it is done let's say and the only downside was that it took us two and a half years so uh, that immediately led to another year and a half of no sales but in the meantime we need to keep producing in order that if it would be tasteful and successful that we would need to have enough product so every week you kept adding barrels yeah. but you did have no idea what the flavor of the first barrel was no be. no wow. the biggest risk was that we would have enough soy sauce for ourselves for the rest of our lives but uh yeah so when we bottled our first um bottle we uh, hand cut the the labels it was so do it yourself uh, at the time it was i think christmas 2017 and our launch strategy if you can call it strategy was okay, everybody of the team gets 10 to 15 bottles, nice box, and we give it to friends and family. And that was on the day before Christmas, the 24th. We gave it to our friends and I was sitting together with, obviously, my brother-in-law with Christmas. And we had an Instagram account with seven followers of which our family was six of them, basically. And But then we got uh, tagged by uh, two Michelin star chef who was very impressed and we were like, who is this <laughs> and how did he get the bottle or she yeah that was a friend of us gave the gift to him so yeah that tells also a little bit about who he is that he gives gifts he got himself but yeah that's a different story but uh it's recycling gifts. it can go the other way around yeah, right? yeah exactly yeah. but no, no, this, he, this friend wanted to help the company and by and he gave it to it to michelin staff yeah yeah it turned out very well for us and that Having a guy cooking on that level saying that about our soy sauce two days after we carefully told it to our friends and family, that was like, yeah, that launched us. So the year following, yeah, that is also maybe the thing that it's a, a frustration for both the farmer as well as the baker, my um, brother-in-law, who they are part of a system that's all about pushing. So they need to push their products in. It's all about cost efficiency, skill, all these rational way of looking at your business and so a dream for both of them is creating a certain product that has a pull mechanism in it and we have a saying in dutch that say bella of gebeld worden makes quite a difference and it means you either start calling or you answer calls and for us as soon as the chef posted it on instagram it's only about answering calls for us so it's a super lucky luxurious position that we're in and and your question was, it's again a long answer, I realize, but your question was uh, where you are now. Yeah, for us, it's now, uh, we're now yeah, two years and uh, uh, four months in business, let's say. And yeah, the growth is insane. It's 
We have doubled our uh, production, I think, a year ago. But that is to prepare for potential sales that we will have in two and a, year, a half years from now. So it, it's a quite difficult balance of, yeah, are we actually believing it happening versus aren't we overreacting whilst we are still we still need to do a lot of the things ourselves because it's not that money is flowing in. We're still not making profit in a sense, but with the margins we have in the vertical chain, we are getting closer with every month. And related to the current situation we're in now, it's also a question you think uh, asked is, obviously, all restaurants are closed at the moment in our main market, the Netherlands, obviously. And they take, I think, 50 to 60, maybe even a bit higher uh, percent of our turnover. So that's quite a big hit for our company. although online and people cooking at home is compensating a lot of that loss of revenue, to be honest. And again, we are lucky with our product because we can slow down the production a little bit and yeah, we can compensate it in the coming months again. So that's, I realize I mentioned a lot of luck in this. Uh... I think it's good. I think we, in the world of entrepreneurship and the world of stories, it seems always like such a logical path that the, the hero or the heroes took. And it's not. And I'm always very happy when somebody said, actually, most of my success comes from pure luck, which I think is absolutely true. But it's, yeah. it's very difficult for people to admit that because usually when somebody's right, obviously it was their decision. When somebody's wrong, it was bad luck, which cannot happen in the same system. But no, I agree. But I think this actually goes exactly to back to what I tried to articulate in the beginning. It's luck will come if you start. You just have to do it. And if you do, then luck will come your way. I think there's really this kind of energy out there. For sure, it doesn't come if you don't start. I think that's the main, I mean, if you didn't take the flight to Kentucky, your brother-in-law, if you didn't, I mean, most people have an idea. I mean, I'm imagining many people had the idea of making soy sauce. Would it be possible to make soy sauce in France, in et cetera, et cetera? And most and all of them didn't start or never really got off the ground, which I think comes to your point, Benedict. You need at least to start, which still means you probably fail because most companies and ideas don't work out. But either you learned a lot, or you have a lot of soy sauce for the rest of your life, or it works, which is obviously what we, we're hearing now. And a big part of that is to um, create a bigger chance of getting that luck is to take small steps. So we quite often ask ourselves the question, what if we would have started with a lot of money in our bank account? then we would have approached it totally different. Then we would have mm -hmm. built a large brewery. The website would look 10 times better, but it would also create a lot of additional pressure to level of success that we need to strive for. And by taking small steps, doing a lot of things ourselves and just investing, especially a lot of time, which is pretty precious, obviously, but I think making small steps allows us to keep the pressure off slightly. And that gave us the time to proceed and persuade that, that level of quality that we're aiming for. And it's still part of our process, on our daily process. Start small. And obviously we all think big, but yeah, it's the start small and baby steps uh, towards that bigger ambition. We have the time. We are not looking at uh, next year or the year after. We are looking at 10, 15, maybe even 20 years from now. And that's where we are aiming for. It's not uh, that we are pressured by investors or by ourselves in a sense, uh, this year we need to have this. Uh, everything is uh, small steps. Is that something you've learned or is that something you always had in you? Because uh, like I have two hearts in my chest. One is somewhere around those lines you just mentioned and the other one is uh, screaming quite loudly. Come on. I mean, it's just so much to do and so much you can do and achieve and mm -hmm. move. Like I'm finding it sometimes very difficult to calm myself and be like, look, there's no stress. Let's do it one step or another. 
Uh, so do you have a blueprint for that either? To be totally honest with you, these are the most difficult conversations we have between uh, me and Thomas, but also with Jeroen, because it's not easy, but it's the bridge between what we can do today based upon the financial possibilities that we have, based upon the team that we have, versus what we have in the pipeline as far as ideas, concepts, products, all the other stuff is concerned. That, that gap is insanely big with us because soy sauce is not the only product that we're going to launch. There are a lot of other products that we are aiming to launch in the same way like we did with the soy sauce. But yeah, it's a constant balance, uh, finding a balance between, okay, we get a lot of opportunities. We see a lot of opportunities, especially the last uh, uh, thing. We see a lot of opportunity. But yeah, you can only do one thing at a time very good. And that's the biggest frustration, to be honest, uh -huh. because we want so much. And sometimes, but the upside is that we are basically forced to take small steps because we are pretty strict on that. We don't want to have external pressure by having investors in whatsoever because mm. autonomy is our, that's our holy grail in the sense that, we are so careful in protecting what we have that we don't want to have pressure on that asset uh, 10, 15 year goal that we have. This is also really interesting from the perspective that, I mean, one of the big problems of having basically a finding someone who, who's able to finance the transition. And if it's a classical bank model that we know, then that's exactly what happens. You, you, you become dependent. You have a third party, if, even if it's an investor who you have to speak to and, and basically tell him or her what you're doing with the money but at the same time question back to you if you would have someone that would offer you capital to take one or two steps faster or scale it up a bit faster and he or she would be sitting on the same half of the table basically not pressuring you basically understanding slow processes if that is the 15 or 10 20 years time would you in that situation also say no i like the kind of pace and the, what it makes me focus on mm. rather than saying well if i mean if i would have that great investor then i will think about it differently obviously that's that we're always open for those type of conversations and the only thing we have a, a pretty clear rule with the four of us if three of the four smile we do it <laughs> and The same goes for this. So if three of us think that's a good idea, then we'll do it. But it really depends then again on values, connection, etc., etc. How many times have you been the fourth one not smiling? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Thus far, we've all agreed on every decision. Oh, that's amazing. So that means that we never had any difficult issues to deal with, I think. <laughs> also related to the topic of this podcast, the transition, this is just a way It's not the way or whatsoever. It's uh, especially looking at the farm of, of Jeroen. This is, he's a very entrepreneurial farmer. He has a lot of initiatives explored and he actually did it. And he's part of a lot of initiatives related to more direct supply to consumers, all kinds of initiatives that shows his entrepreneurial spirit in a sense. And we are one of these initiatives. So it's not that his, he has 350 hectares at the south of uh, Rotterdam. And uh, to give you a little bit of context, I think now six or seven hectares is allocated for soybeans uh, this year and another uh, six, seven for wheat for the coming year. So that's 12 hectares for the soy sauce product and a lot of, yeah, I think, 10, 15 for a new project that is coming. So it's five to 10% of his total farmland now, which is already quite significant if you ask me. But it cannot be seen as the way to, it's, it's part of the transition 
phase he is in. It's, it's an element and not the transition phase. Yeah, I think it's crucial to, because it's also a huge risk, obviously. What if it doesn't work? What if after two and a half years, there was a, not a good product coming out or a very bad tasting soy sauce? Then if you had 50%, then already 50% of, of the farm with soy basically contracted for the soy brewery, it would be a huge disaster. Yeah, yeah. my answer to that is then it better be fun doing so. Otherwise, it's and bad luck and it's also not fun. <laughs> no, no, obviously. Yeah. What do you take away from this conversation, Benedict? Well, Joel Salatin always says, a good thing is worth doing even if it's done bad. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um, <laughs> what I really enjoy bad, and I mean, this is, I think, two things really, and one that is predominant in what we do all the time is having fun, right? I mean, life is tough. Cash flow is bad. There's so many risks and fears and, and stuff like that, but it's incredible work. I mean, we are outside, you know, we can do what we want. We can create, we can build things, we can grow, we can create life basically, right? Obviously not. Fair enough. In that certain um, frame, obviously, but so having fun, enjoying what you're doing, getting up and, you know, having things that you love talking about, you love thinking about, you speak to everyone about having that, basically that energy and that comes with a project that you fell in love with, I guess. So I think that's, that's really crucial, having a new way, going different routes and, and by that, just enjoying what you're doing. I think that's, that's a key thing. And then something which you said, I don't actually like being told very much, but it's probably true, is that you have to focus on, on the single things. And, and once you do that, you obviously uh, get much better at it or advance faster or whatever. So I think that's interesting how you say, you know, because we cannot do everything at the same time, we are forced to make sure that what we do is good and and actually increases the quality of the product as well. I think that was that's a really interesting approach. I understand when you're saying that you don't like to hear that in a sense because you want to do a lot of things at the same time. <laughs> and that's true and it's also not true. It's true because if we wouldn't have been all over the place for the last 10 years, then we wouldn't be able to connect the dots basically. So the fact that Jeroen was doing shorter uh, supply uh, chains, uh, the fact that mm -hmm. I was working in a more commercial environment, the fact that my brother-in-law did a lot of uh, other different initiatives with a gluten-free bakery, it all gave us the fuel to be able to do what we... And now we still are all over the place, but mm -hmm. the daily operation should not be influenced by us talking about conquering the world and uh, dreaming of whatever we can dream of. So there's a very thin line between the dreams and the ambition, etc. versus, okay, this is the reality of today. And those are the most tough conversations. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah, you put it nice. So Kuhn, I think it's it's time for your famous last question. Yeah, I mean, I, I no, actually, I do have one. Where do you see, I mean, we're in crazy times, so predicting is very, very difficult. But you say you have a a 15, 20-year vision. What is that 15, 20-year vision? I don't want to ask what do you see yourself in a year because we have no clue. But what is that long-term for Tommaso, for the larger company you mentioned, you're going to launch other products. Obviously, you cannot mention many of those. But what is that long-term 15, 20-year vision? Well, Tommaso is, for us, a brand. So a brand with products related to soy sauce, obviously. The company we're involved is, uh, with is called Boerbakker Bert. And that is uh, Boer. Farmer, Jeroen, Bakker, Thomas and Piet, and Bert, my name. So the four of us represent, let's say, a vertical food chain. And Tomasu is our first, our first brand, our first collection of products. 
And the way we look at it is that, okay, if we have this up and running, which still is not the case, then why not, based upon the same philosophy, we grab another product that is already there for centuries, like soy sauce, and we approach it the same way. And inspired by wine and with the learnings we have and uh, in the blueprint we have from Tomasso, we create a new brand with a new product. And you can think of a beer, a bread, a liquor, whatsoever, but products that have proven themselves over the years and do it our way. And our way is not um, a rocket science. It's just doing it the way we are able to do it by having our own fields, our own crops, our own processes. And so if you ask me 10, 15 years from now, we hopefully have, let's say, four or five categories, all supported by the farm with an experience center on the farm where yeah, the whole philosophy and the vision is shared that we can show our soil, that we can maybe even, I find it um, uh, hard to use the word, but maybe even have an inspiring role in the sense that we can educate on how a food system should be working, according to us, to be very humble. But yeah, we want to open our doors. And those are things, uh, talking about ambitions, that yeah, we are trying to do so. We are trying to open our doors as much as possible. Whoever, whenever, if you want to visit us, yeah, you're always welcome in the sense that if you can show it, people will believe it. We are never going to tell them it, that we have the truth, the monopoly for the truth. But if, for us, it's like the least we can do is show it. So 10, 15 years from now, I can invite the two of you on our farm with our restaurant where we are uh, eating bread grown 15 yards from where we were sitting, basically. <laughs> I think that's a, a great vision to end up. I want to thank you so much, Bert, for taking the time and obviously thank Benedict for, for taking the time and being on it. I thank you, guys. I think it was interesting, tasty. I almost got hungry and very informative as we don't have, I'm thinking of how many product-focused discussions I've had in general in the podcast and for sure in this series we haven't. So thank you so much for explaining a bit more on how to go from soil to bottle and then to plate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode, which is part of the Transition Finance series, trying to find appropriate transition finance to speed up regenerative agriculture on farms. For feedback, ideas, suggestions, please contact us through Twitter or via the contact page on the website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. Please share this episode with a friend and give us a five-star rating, which really helps others to find the podcast. All the episodes of the series can be found on the website and in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.